Be sure to subscribe to our Patreon channel for early access to unforgotten episodes and bonus content. Your subscription will help support the efforts of ACCA in assisting families and raising awareness for Alabama cold cases. Hey everyone, this is Sellers. And this is Stormy. And And this this is is Unforgotten. Where each episode will highlight unsolved missing, murdered, and suspicious death cases in Alabama in order to raise awareness and hopefully obtain some answers for victims and their families. Please remember that any individual referenced in the podcast should be considered innocent until found guilty in a court of law, and any opinions or views expressed in the podcast are solely those of participants. Listener discretion is advised as some of the content discussed in the podcast may contain violence or graphic descriptions and may not be suitable for all audiences. Hey guys, and welcome back. We're starting out a little differently today because on January 19th, we received some bittersweet news. Opelika's baby Jane Doe finally had a name, a more Jovea Wiggins, born on January 1st, 2006. On January 28, 2012, Opelika Police Department responded to remains being found behind a home in Brookhaven Trailer Park. The initial report determined the remains to be those of a young African-American female between the ages of four and seven. Because there was no one to identify her, and no report of any missing child matching her description, Amore was known affectionately as Baby Jane Doe for over 10 years. Opelika PD spent countless hours reviewing over 15,000 case files and followed up on thousands and thousands of tips. In January of 2022, Her remains were sent to Othram to extract suitable DNA for sequencing and a comprehensive genealogical profile was built. Dr. Barbara Ray Venter with Firebird Forensics Group used the DNA profile to narrow down potential individuals for her biological parents. And in October of 2022, Lamar Vickerstaff was identified as the biological father. Vickerstaff, who was born and raised in Opelika, enlisted in the Navy and had lived in Virginia and Hawaii, and in 2006, he had married his wife, Ruth. When investigators met with him in December of 2022, he and his wife lived in Jacksonville, Florida, where he was stationed at the Naval Station Mayport. During interviews, Vickerstaff nor his wife ever provided any information on the identity of Amor or her mother. But... Later that same December, detectives met with Sherry Wiggins where she was living in Maryland, but she originally was from Norfolk, Virginia. Sherry confirmed that she was Amore's mother, who was born in January of 2006. She gave investigators papers showing that the Vicar staffs received legal and physical custody of Amore in 2009, and Sherry's visitations were suspended. In an added twist in the story, Sherry had been continuously paying child support to the vicar staffs since they obtained custody. Sherry didn't even know her daughter had been missing. That part just blew my mind when I heard that in the 
yeah. conference today. It really did to me too. I was like, it kind of, you kind of wonder because this has happened with other children um, where they hide a disappearance and then continue to collect. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's just a horrendous thing. I mean, it's the, the murder or even, you know, the murder or even just a custody battle when they fraud the payment on top of that, it just, it's just terrible. Especially for a parent who didn't even know. Right. I was just going to say, because her mom didn't even realize her daughter was missing because she had lost custody at that point. After the vicar staffs obtained custody, Amora's life does not appear to have been spent in a loving and safe environment with parents who showered her with affection and attention, at least not the kind that she deserved. The autopsy showed Amora had fractures to her skull, arms, legs, shoulders, and ribs. There were more than 15 fractures in all. All had evidence of healing and appeared to have occurred at some point prior to her death. She was also malnourished and blind in her left eye due to a fracture due to a fracture in her eye socket. The autopsy determined that her cause of death was homicide, and it was estimated to have occurred between 2010 and 2011. Amor had never been enrolled in school, there were no apparent medical records, and she had never been reported missing. As you can tell, this is very heartbreaking, just reading it. Very emotional, and I, I remember watching the news conference thinking, look at those officers and investigators and listening to the people and so many tears and emotion. And I can hear it in, in the seller's voice and I'm feeling it in mine now. I think it it's it's tough. I know. It is really tough. I can't even imagine for all those people that were really attached to baby Jane Doe at the time and to hear her name spoken. They put a lot of work and time into identifying more and getting justice for to read the effort that went into this and to see them in the press conference today Opelika Police Department had a lot of love for Amore. Yeah. Many. I think she had a bigger family than she ever realized in life. On January 17th, Vickerstaffs were arrested. Lamar was charged with felony murder, and Ruth was charged with failure to report a missing child. They actually waived extradition and will be transported to Alabama to wait trial. Opelika Police Department continues their investigation into what happened to Amor Javea Wiggins. If you or anyone you know has any information regarding the relationship that Lamar and Ruth had with Amor and or her time in Opelika, 
please contact the Opelika Police Department Detective Division at 334-705-5220, or you can use the Secret Witness Hotline at 334-745-8665. Wiggins is a native of Norfolk, Virginia, and stated she gave birth to a baby girl. Named Amore Wiggins. The successful identification of Amore and her biological parents is a testament to not only what can be achieved through dedicated and collaborative efforts between agencies, but also the advancements that have been made in DNA profiling and how it can be used to obtain answers, which is encouraging for families who are still waiting. Over the next few episodes, we are going back to cover cases ACCA highlighted in the beginning. Since information is sometimes limited, not all of the cases we discuss will have the same level of detail as Brittany's case did in Episode 1, like today's cases, unfortunately. Before we get into the details of those cases, though, we wanted to note that we did reach out to Montgomery Police Department and ask if they could provide a comment, status, or any related records but we were told their policy was not to comment or release information related to ongoing investigations. So the information you hear today has been compiled from publicly available resources, such as local media articles, interviews, NamUs, and Aaliyah's missing person database. The next case we'll discuss is that of Rakeem Samuel. Rakeem was only 20 years old when he went missing from Montgomery on April 2nd, 2016. His mother, Erica Davis, describes him as a well-mannered young man who had never been in trouble. He was smart, kind, and respectful. He was a well-mannered young man, never been in trouble, probably had a speeding ticket. Um, He just, I think he was a, a young person in an old man's body. Uh, his wisdom was just out of this world. And um, And based on the pictures I've seen, he was always smiling. I've learned something recently, too, that Rakeem was a wrestler in high school. I've watched some of those matches, and those take grit. So he must have been pretty tough, too. And Rakeem was also a hard worker. He very rarely showed up late or missed a day of work. In fact, on the morning of April 2nd in 2016, Rakim finished up his night shift at Glovis, which is a company that makes Hyundai vehicles, and then he returned to his mother's home. Erica was getting ready to attend a friend's wedding in Tuskegee when he arrived, and she recalls Rakim being in just a pleasant mood when he got in. While Erica finished getting dressed, Rakim cooked the two of them breakfast, and after they ate, he walked her out to the car and told her goodbye. I mean, he sounds like a genuinely good-hearted, thoughtful person. And knowing what comes next, it sound, this sounds like one of those times that you just want to hold on to for a little bit longer. It is. It's absolutely heartbreaking. Which I guess is kind of a theme today. Sorry, guys. Tugging at our heartstrings. Yes. Rakeem called Erica after she left, complaining of body aches. 
she, as a good mother would do, told him where the Epsom salt was located if he wanted to take a hot bath. And unfortunately, this was the last time Erica ever heard her son's voice. I also want to talk about Erica Davis for a moment, because this is one strong mama. If you haven't watched her interview with Crime Door or listened to her interview with Tawana Spann on Missing Our Voice podcast, you should. The links are in our episode description. Erica's household was a tight ship. If you were living under her roof, whether you were 10 or 20, you were abiding by her rules, which meant being at home by curfew and not a minute later. You kept your phone charged and you answered if she called you. I'm sure kids, especially teenagers, would groan or try to push their boundaries, and maybe her children did on occasion. But from what it sounds like, Erica raised some pretty respectful kids who really did honor her rules. That's exactly what it sounds like, because this set a routine and expectations. So when Erica called Rakeem on her way home from the wedding around 8 p.m. and his phone went straight to voicemail, she knew something was off. Not to mention that thing about a mother's intuition, it always seems to be spot on. That is a real thing. Yep. With Rakeem not answering, Erica thought maybe his phone battery had died and he just had forgotten to put it on the charger. Or maybe there were some cell service issues. So she continued calling in hopes that he would pick up the phone. But then she got home and he wasn't there. While Rakeem wasn't home, Erica's sister was there and told her that Rakeem had been picked up earlier in the day by a female co-worker to run some errands since his car was in the shop. Her sister thought it was odd that the young lady didn't pull up in front of the house or the driveway and instead parked slightly down from the front of the house. As time continued to creep up on Rakeem's midnight curfew, Erica reminded herself that he still had a few minutes before she really needed to start questioning his whereabouts. However, the routines and expectations she'd built for her children were broken when her calls that evening had repeatedly gone straight to voicemail and her concern was steadily growing. When she continued to receive Rakeem's voicemail and he hadn't returned home by midnight, she called Rakeem's father to see if he had heard anything. He had told her not to worry, just give Rakeem time. He'd probably be home soon. But throughout the following day, Erica continued trying to contact Rakeem with no luck. She contacted family members, hoping that maybe they had seen or spoke with him, but they hadn't. She also called his father again, at which point his father made the decision to travel from his home in Bruton to Montgomery. That afternoon, while Erica was in her driveway vacuuming out her car, she was approached by the friend who had picked Rakeem up on Saturday. She asked to see Rakeem so she could give him back his cell phone charger, which she was holding. Later, when looking back on this moment, Erica recalled the young woman was holding the charger as though she didn't really want to touch it. After Erica informed Rakeem's friend that he wasn't home, his friend went on to say that after lunch, she had taken Rakeem to one of his classmates' homes, and then she took him to meet up with another Glovis worker at Walmart on Eastern Boulevard around 1.30 p.m. She said that Rakeem had planned to return to her house later and pick up some, quote, things he had left there. Erica was certain something was terribly wrong when Rakeem had still not returned by Monday, April 4, 2016. Taking a more proactive approach, she contacted her phone provider 
explained what was going on, and requested the last numbers Rakeem had any communication with, whether it was through phone call or text. When she called the number she'd been given, a female answered the phone. Hello? That female turned out to be the same coworker friend who picked up Rakeem on Saturday. Erica stated the young woman broke down into tears when she learned Erica was calling in search of Rakeem. When Erica asked why she was so upset, the young woman explained that when she dropped off Rakeem at Walmart, he had gotten into a black Forder Nissan Versa with a male coworker and another man who was someone that Rakeem didn't know. Considering the friend Erica was talking to was the last person she knew for sure had seen Rakeem, she insisted the friend meet her at Montgomery Police Department and give them the same information for the missing person report. After filing the report and leaving the police station, Rakeem's friend tells Erica that Rakeem's backpack was still at her house, which was something Erica says the friend failed to mention to her or the police. Well, that makes you kind of wonder, if she had the backpack the entire time, why not return it at the same time she returned the charger? Right. Why, I don't really understand why you would only bring back one of his things if you were returning his belongings, why wouldn't you bring everything? Right. Erica and the young woman returned to Erica's home after filing the report. With the help of Erica's family, they began poring over Rakeem's call and text logs, calling any numbers they didn't recognize to see if they had heard from Rakeem in the last several days. They even went by the classmate's home to see if Rakeem was there or if the classmate had spoken to him again. According to Erica, the young woman who had picked up Rakeem had begun to act somewhat nervous and abruptly stated she needed to leave, which in turn made Erica a little hesitant to reach out to her again. I can't say that I blame her. We don't know the name of the friend that picked Rakeem up, and we're not saying she has anything to do with his disappearance. There could have been a number of reasons she didn't want to be involved. Maybe she was concerned for her own safety. Or maybe she did know more than she wanted to share. But as a mother, if the last person who saw one of my children wasn't at all inclined to help search for them, I think it would raise some red flags for me too. And I'd probably just let the investigators handle that. Right. You don't want someone who may be withholding information from you, potentially relaying what you know or where you're searching to people who maybe are involved. Yeah. So sometimes it's just better, yeah. It's, sometimes it's just better to limit your contact to the people you know can you can trust. And, you know, at this point, he's missing. So they're hoping somebody has talked to him. And if they're keeping him from being able to contact his family intentionally, you don't want to be talking to somebody that's like, hey, by the way, here's where they're at. You need to, like, move him. Mm. Right. Over the next 90 days, Erica, along with family, friends, and coworkers, diligently and relentlessly searched any and all areas they could get to for any sign of Rakeem. Now, there's something Erica has said that's just so disheartening. Not long after Rakeem's disappearance, she asked the investigator handling his case if his name and a photo or something could be shown on the news just to help get the word out. And she was told that it would be a violation of his rights to do that. 
And that is just so hard for me to even wrap my mind around because it wasn't like that was just unheard of. We just heard about all the work the Opelika Police Department put into finding baby Jane Doe's identity to give her back her name, to give Amor back her right. name. And I mean, how many times have you seen law enforcement release a picture to the general public in search of a person? I mean, it almost happens immediately most of the time. If it's, And then there's age progression photos that right. come out. So I don't know what this is about at all. It, it kind of blows my mind that they would even say that. Yeah. And there is actually, if you listen, if you go listen to her inter, her interview with Tawana Span, you'll get a good feeling for what I was talking about earlier about the kind of mom that Erica is, because she says, you know, she told him. What rice? You know, <laughs> like she was so mad about it. Like, you know, we don't have locked doors in our house. We don't keep secrets. I just, you know, she just didn't, it blew her mind that they were not going to let her yeah, put this on crazy. the news. And right. anyway. <laughs> yeah. I think the public and media are underused resources. I mean, getting a name out to the public and, and a face out to the public quickly gives the agencies more eyes scanning surroundings. And it costs nothing. Thankfully, it does seem like agencies are utilizing news outlets and social media platforms more frequently to quickly disseminate information now. According to the September 7, 2022 WSFA case file on Rakeem, Cell phone records led investigators to a wooded area in the 300 block of Hopper Street in Montgomery on June 30, 2016, where Rakeem's remains were found, almost three months after his disappearance. His phone has never been recovered. Rakeem's death is considered a homicide. However, the cause of death has been classified as undetermined. To date, no person of interest has ever been named related to Rakeem's disappearance. The cell phone records and Walmart surveillance video seem to indicate that a, the person responsible for Rakeem's death is someone he knew and worked with, at least according to Erica. One of those co-workers who helped search for Rakeem was Nanette Thomas, who was Rakeem's team lead at Glovis. On April 6th, she went to visit with Erica and told her she would continue to search for Rakeem and ask around at work to see if any of the employees had heard anything or seen anything. But on April 8th, just days after Rakeem's disappearance, Nanette's family received a phone call from her supervisor advising that she had not been to work in a couple of days, which was not at all like her. Nanette had always been a loyal worker with regular attendance, so her absence was very concerning. When attempts to contact Nanette were unsuccessful, her family immediately went to her East Hill Road apartment, but she wasn't home, and nothing seemed to be out of order. Concerned about her safety, her family went to Montgomery Police Department and filed a missing person report. And despite the fact that Nanette's disappearance occurred just six days after Rakeem's and that they both worked at Glovis on the same team, 
Montgomery PD has indicated that they do not think that there's a connection between the two. I'm not sure why. And family members aren't really sure why either. Erica told Jasmine Williams with WSFA that she felt the two cases were connected. They work on the same line. That was his team leader. I truly feel like they're connected because I know what she told me before leaving my home, going looking for my son, that she was finna ask questions. She was finna get to the bottom of it. Six years later, Rakeem's case remains unsolved and Nanette is still missing. If you or someone you know has any information related to the murder of Rakeem Samuel or the disappearance of Nanette Thomas, we urge you to contact Montgomery Police Department at 334-241-2651 or Central Alabama Crime Stoppers at 334-215-7867 or on their website. As always, you can also message us on the Alabama Cold Case Advocacy Facebook page or by email as noted in the description. Unforgotten is an Alabama cold case advocacy podcast recorded in conjunction with Riverside FM, hosted and distributed by Anchor FM, available on your favorite podcast platform. Intro music for the show was created by Principles of Uncertainty, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Content and production is by Sellers and Stormy, artwork by Sellers. Credits for music, sound clips, special mentions, and any source referenced in our podcast can be found in each episode's description. We hope you will join us on all the major social media sites and continue to raise awareness of our Alabama cold cases. Until next time, thank you for listening to Unforgotten.